Well done, guys. They do a brilliant job, the tech team, don't they? I think they just pressed the wrong button then. They did a good job. Go on, give them a round of applause. Encouraging, they did great. Next week, next week we should have at least partially installed all of the new sound and tech equipment. So um, who knows what will be happening then. Well, that's smoke and lasers and all kinds of stuff. We love all that, don't we? No, we won't be having any of that. So the story continues with Peter and John. And of course, some of you will be somewhat anxious about what is going to unfold because what you've heard in the last few weeks as we have looked more deeply at the Jerusalem church, the very first church, the very first expression of the church of Jesus Christ here on earth, you have been perhaps challenged. Maybe some of the things that we've been sharing in these last couple of weeks, you've heard and you've been taught in the past, these things are associated with heresy. Perhaps you've been taught that healing no longer continues in in today's church. Maybe you've heard that people who pronounce the idea of the power of the Spirit working through us are only operating out of hubris and pride. Maybe you've heard all kinds of different things. I commend you for hanging in and for staying with the journey. Because as we stay with the journey and as we dig into what it is that God is saying clearly and irrevocably within his word, we'll become clearer about what it is that he wants us to do. The narrative continues. John and Peter are in the temple courts. They preach to the people. The temple guard, the Sadducees and the priests have come as Aaron read to us, and they have put Peter and John in jail. Overnight, they're awaiting their trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, I don't know how you feel about that kind of story. I've had a, I've had a lot of things... Um, framed over the years. My kids have framed the, um, the covers of my books, the first editions of my books, various different things. They get kind of old after a while, and so we've kind of archived those. I don't know where they all are right now. But there was this um, one quote from uh, one of my books called Leading Kingdom Movements that one way or another has been on our walls in the various houses that we've had over the years, probably over the last five years since the book came out. It's from page 36 of Leading Kingdom Movements and is pretty much a direct lift from one of those pages. It says this, I imagine you have already had great breaking experiences in your life. The question is not necessarily whether you've had them, but what you did with them. What did you do with the great breaking experiences of your life? Peter and John went through a great breaking experience. John was there at the cross 
and his breaking experience of seeing Jesus die before his very eyes must be unimaginable for us. There at the cross, he received Jesus' mother to be taken into his own household. And Peter, as we all know, was not there at the cross, but was languishing someplace, having realized that he had denied and betrayed his Lord as Jesus had prophesied. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Peter had denied his Lord three times. Jesus had been taken away, had been beaten and abused, had been convicted by a cowardly judge, had been sentenced by wicked, callous rulers, and been sent to the gallows of the cross. How do you think Peter and John were feeling about meeting those men in the morning as they were taken away to the jail near the temple? Do you think they were fine, kick back, put their feet up for the evening, chat about old times? Reminisce, have a laugh. How do, you, how do you think they felt? They were about to meet the wicked rulers of their people. People that, that Peter had identified were the ones who had led all of the people of Israel astray in crucifying the Lord of glory. This group of people were unchecked and unchallenged in their power. They were able to do whatever they wanted. And they were going to face them tomorrow on similar charges that were brought before Jesus. Do you think that may have been a breaking experience all over again for Peter and for John? A couple of months ago, we talked about this, and I tried to illustrate it. We've had various illustrations of pottery and various different artifacts here on stage. And um, I've suggested that our lives are something like this vessel here that I've broken. And you and I are unable to make the vessel of our life whole again. You and I constantly find ourselves trying to put back the pieces of our life, but discovering on numerous occasions that the experiences of life break us open again. We find that the fissures and the fault lines in our life are constantly exposed by the shaking that we experience. We find ourselves thrown back 
on old memories. We find ourselves taken back into old behavior patterns. We find ourselves compensating for the pain that we feel inside. What can we do? What is the answer? What is the, what is the purpose? What is the use of these breaking experiences? Peter and John give us something of a clue. Acts chapter 4 and verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Terrifying circumstances. So how is it that these are the next words in the next verse? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. How can Peter and John go from an understandably breaking experience to the place of being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with such boldness and declaring with such victory in their voices the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question for today's study. And the answer is very straightforward. When you look at Luke's narrative, there is a foundational principle that you see in the life of Jesus and you see articulated and imitated in the life of the early church. And the foundational principle is this. In retreat, we find the basis of power. In retreat, we find the secret of victory. In retreat, we find all that's necessary to make the next advance. Jesus begins this pattern expresses this pattern, founds this pattern as he's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. The open heaven 
is above him from that point on. He goes into the wilderness. He is tested by the enemy. And what is it that is tested? What is tested is his identity. If you are the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. The various ways in which the enemy works are identical in the life of Jesus and us. He tests us and tempts us in the areas of appetite and approval, ambition, and the basis of that temptation is to be somebody who you're not. The basis of that temptation is to rely upon some some way of understanding yourself that is not found in the revelation of the Father. The revelation of the Father is this. You are his child. And he loves you. And he is proud of you. With you, the Father says, I'm well pleased. You say, well, maybe he's got an off day because he obviously hasn't seen the things that I've been up to. How could he be proud of those things? Well, we'll get into that in a moment. But for now, hear these words again. Words spoken first to Jesus and now spoken to us through the everlasting covenant, one in his death, ratified in his blood and forever established. You are the children of God because the Son of God has extended his identity to you. You are the sons and daughters of God because the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has become human, has taken on flesh, and has embraced your identity and mine with all of its frailty, with all of its failure. And he has allowed the separation of sin to take him to the grave. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could be the ones in right relationship with God so that we could be the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus in the wilderness has his identity attacked. In retreat, you will have your identity attacked. In retreat, you will establish and settle your identity, because in retreat, 
when you step back from the fray, you have to work out who you are. Because unless you know who you are, you cannot know with what authority you go forward. And if you do not know the authority with which you go forward, the power that is yours and available to you cannot possibly flow as it should. Because power comes from authority. And authority comes from identity. Luke chapter 4 verse 14. Jesus came out of the wilderness full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in the wilderness settles his identity. In that identity, he settles his authority. In that authority, the power of God begins to flow. He goes to his first location to Nazareth and says with these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free. There's no lack of confidence in Jesus. This, this very identity Jesus gives first to Simon, Simon, son of John. You know that I'm the son of God, but flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven, and so I give you my name, the rock. And no longer will you be called Simon, now you will be called Peter. Because you have my name. And if you have my name, you have my identity. And if you have my identity, you have my authority. And if you have my authority, you have my power. And so Peter, in his enforced retreat, we wouldn't think of jail as enforced retreat, but in his enforced retreat, settles again his identity settles again his authority, settles again the source of his power. How do I know that? I mean, seriously, what does he say when he comes out? It's like he's been going over the events of Caesarea Philippi. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he's healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the what? The name, the identity of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. The scriptures that are undergirding the conversation between Peter and Jesus in Caesarea Philippi are quoted here by Peter. Psalm 118 speaks about the cornerstone, the capstone which is a metaphor for leadership in the Old Testament. 
the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, will be the leader of leaders. Jesus is the leader of leaders. Peter is saying to the Sanhedrin, you think you're the leaders? You're only leaders under the leader. And the leader is the rock. And the rock is Jesus. And I know because I bear his name. And because I bear his name, I carry his authority. And because I carry his authority, his power moves through me. Now, friends, if you can get this, it changes everything. If you can get that in your brokenness, you bring the pieces, you bring your frailty, you bring your failing. You bring your frustration and you place them in the hands of Jesus. And you say, Jesus, you were broken for me. And so I know that you can take my broken pieces and put them back together again because in being broken for me, you demonstrated that breaking was not the end. Resurrection is the end. And so you can take the broken pieces. You can take my frailty. You can take my frustrations. You can take my failure. And somehow, Lord, you can use these as a crucible for your identity. You can use these as a container of your authority. You can use these as a conduit of your power. If we can come to this realization, a lot of things begin to change. Now, Let's just deal with some of the issues that you may face. One of the things that you may face is the astonishment of people around you. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Of course, they were thinking that they had been with Jesus during Jesus' ministry. They didn't know that they'd been with Jesus all night back in the jail. And that Jesus was reminding them of their identity. And Jesus was reminding them of their authority. And Jesus was reminding them of their power. That's right, they had been with Jesus right up and continuously through 
the time that they were speaking to the Sanhedrin, Jesus was there. Because Jesus is always present. Wherever anyone gathers in his identity, where two or three are gathered in my identity, in my name, when two or three are together recognizing my identity, understanding my authority, open to my power, I'm there. And if I'm there, I'm doing the things that I've always done. If I'm there, I'm available to the sick. I'm available to the demonized. I'm available to the lepers. I'm available to the dead. I'm available to the broken. I'm available. Jesus is the name that you carry. It is the identity that has been imputed to you by God. You are a different person. And you say, I get it wrong so often. Well, you can do one of two things. You can withdraw or retreat. Adam and Eve withdrew. They tried to hide their embarrassment. They realized they were naked. Who told you you were naked? God says. They realized that their shame was real to them for the first time. They realized for the first time that they'd done something wrong. What have you done, says God? They realized for the first time that fear was a reality. They were hiding from God. Does your addiction, does your pattern of behavior that carries you back into sin, does your bitterness, unforgiveness, does your sense of who you are cause you to be fearful, shame-filled, and guilty? Do you find yourself withdrawing from the Lord's presence like Adam and Eve in your shame and in your guilt and in your fear? Do you find yourself doing that? I've done it again. Back in the old pattern again. I'm good for nothing. I'm never going to shake the shackles of my past. I'm never going to escape the captivity of my sinfulness. Or, do you say... Jesus, here I am again, broken, like before. Do you say, 
Jesus, here I am again, a failure, frail, frustrated. Because you see, if you will retreat to him, it's called repentance. It means stopping trying to fix things with your own intelligence and starting to allow him to change your mind. Metanoia, the Greek word for repentance. Meta, change, noia, mind. A change of mind is what is needed. And so we retreat to Jesus and we bring the stuff. We bring the frailty. We bring the failure. And although our instinct is to turn away in shame, Jesus says, look at me. Look at these scars. They're never going to go away. I'm going to carry them in heaven forever. Have you ever thought about that? The perfect resurrected body of the Son of God is flawed. The perfect resurrected body of the first fruits of the new humanity is flawed forever. Why? Because the first thing that Jesus says when he comes into our upper room after he said peace is, look at my hands. Look at my side. It still works. It's still effective. It's still for you. Bring to me the frailty. Bring to me the failure. Allow me to hold that broken life together as a crucible of my new identity. Let me hold those broken pieces together as a container for my authority. Allow me to hold together those broken pieces that you might be a conduit of God's power. And if we'll do that, then everything changes. Now, people may think of you as being arrogant because you're so courageous. People may think of you as pride-filled because you are so clear. But you see, that's because they don't understand that humility is not defined by our relationship to other human beings. Humility is defined by our relationship to God. And when you retreat to him with the broken pieces of your life, that is the definition of humility. Because you're saying to him, I can't do it, but I know you can. 
And when he does do it, and he will on every occasion, when he does do it, what happens is that the new identity flourishes again. The new authority begins to flow. The power begins to surge. And you can do great things because you walk in the name of a great God. Not in your name, not in my name, not in the name of your congregation, not in the name of your favorite theologian, not in the name of anything other than Jesus. And when this happens, the world sits up and notices. Maybe even is astonished. And they take note that you've been with Jesus. They take note that this person that was the shrinking, withdrawing, shame-filled, fear-filled, guilt-ridden Christian is now walking on the heights like a champion. It's just a different way of functioning. It's a different way of being. And you say, well, how can I sustain it? Well, you sustain it in exactly the same way as Jesus sustained it. He came and he took on our flesh and he carried his life through the circumstances of our existence, showing us how we should do it. Luke 5:16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Often. You can see the pattern over and over again. He takes Peter and John with him, along with James, up the mountain. There he's transfigured before them. And the very first thing that they hear is that it's all about identity. How? Because from the glowing cloud, the voice of the Father booms out, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. You see, these experiences have riven deep into the heart of Peter and John. The understanding that they stand not in their own strength, but in the strength of one who is stronger than anyone they face. And so you, me, what do we do when we're faced with unassailable odds? What do we do when the mountain of sickness is right there in front of us? What do we do when we find ourselves in circumstances that would define us? They would make us poor. They would make us weak. They would make us sickly. They would make us bowed down. What do we do? What do we do when circumstance conspires and the voice of the enemy tells us that this is our lot for life? What do we do? We step back and we say, Jesus, 
It's a mountain. We step back and we say, Jesus, my frailty is not enough to face this challenge. We step back and we say, Lord Jesus, right now, it's hard for me to remember who you called me to be. Help me, Lord. And Jesus will whisper in our ear, How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. Just before we finish today, go to Romans chapter 8. Because you see, this is all through the Bible. Romans chapter 8. And verse 15, the circumstances are too great. The enemy assails us. We find ourselves overwhelmed. And we step back. And the scriptures say this, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ? What does Jesus inherit? Everything. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What does Paul mean? He means this. If you allow the circumstances of trouble... If you allow the circumstances of suffering, if you allow the circumstances of shaking to drive you back into the glory of the presence of the Son of God, and if those circumstances will drive you back into his presence rather than away from God, if you'll allow them to cause you to retreat rather than to withdraw, you will hear who you are. And if you know who you are, then you know the capacity you have to change the world. Do you think Jesus can change the world? Does Jesus live in you? Can you change the world? There it is. There it is. And how does it grow? It grows by the simplicity of discipline. By the simplicity of learning the rhythm 
that Aaron so articulately described. This rhythm of retreat and engagement, rest and work. What are we doing in rest? What are we doing in retreat? We're hearing the Holy Spirit tell us that your name is Jesus. You carry his identity. You may be called other things. Simon. But you've got a new name now. And we're going to call you Simon the Rock. You have a new name now. You have a Christian name now. You have a baptismal name now. A name that identifies you with the Son of God. Now, we don't start posturing. We don't start posing. We don't start pushing our weight around. You never see Jesus doing that. What we do is we operate in simple confidence that when the occasion requires it, manifests itself as courage. Simple confidence. That when the occasion requires it, manifests itself as courage. So who today needs a fresh touch of God. Who today needs Jesus to break in? Last week we saw some people who have found their life being touched by Jesus. Sheila's story is amazing. You know, I've worked with many, many different people over many, many different places and circumstances who've had chronic injuries. It's an amazing thing that's happened in her life. The scar tissue is still there holding her hand in this unusual position, but it's completely different to what it was last week. There's no pain there anymore. Who knows what it is that the Lord will continue to do as he continues to work his amazing miracle in her life. What is it that God needs to do in your life? Are there healings? Are there deliverances? Are there breakthroughs that are needed? Well, if there are, then you're in the presence of Jesus because we stand here, we sit here, we gather here in his identity and he walks among us. So if you need Jesus to do something miraculous today, as we complete our time as we did yesterday or as we did last week. Just stand where you are. Maybe a miracle in your finances. A miracle in your business. A miracle in your marriage. A miracle of repairing relationships in your family. A miracle in the workplace. 
a miracle in your body, a miracle in your mind, a miracle in your memories. How many carry memories that haunt them day and night? As you stand, there are those who, who gather with you, who metaphorically stand with you in the name of Jesus. Extend your hand to these dear ones, just so that you can focus what it is that you're doing right now as you pray for God's breakthrough and pray with confidence, pray with expectation, pray knowing that Jesus is always about his work. And you may say, well, Mike, surely raising expectations like this is only going to lead to greater frustration and sadness. But I say not so. Because I say this, if you stand now, the commitment of Jesus, the commitment of me and the commitment of this body is to keep praying until one of three things happens. You get your answer, Jesus returns, or you go to heaven. You get your answer, Jesus returns or you go to heaven. You cannot lose. Lord, I pray for these dear ones whose lives are a battlefield right now. Thank you, Lord, for these warriors. Thank you, Lord, for these heroes. Thank you, Lord, that the host of heaven looks upon them as the heroes in the fray. And thank you, Lord, that they are all more than conquerors through him who loved them and gave himself for them. And Lord, I pray that the hearts of champions would rise here. I pray, Lord, that breakthroughs would come, that mountains would move, that bodies would be healed, that minds would be restored. Lives, Lord, relationships would be repaired. Lord, you do it. You know how to do it. You've always done it and you always will. And so, Lord, we give you the glory. And all God's people say,